quote, her antiquity in preceding and surviving succeeding Tellurian generations, her nocturnal predominance, her satellite dependence, her luminary reflection, her constancy under all her phases, rising and setting by her appointed times, waxing and waning, the forced invariability of her aspect, her immediate response to in affirmative interrogation, her potency over effluent and refluent water, her powers to enamore, to mortify, to invest with beauty, to render insane, to incite to and aid delinquency, her tranquil inscrutability of her visage, the terribility of her isolated, dominant, resplendent prop inequity, her omens of tempest and of calm, the stimulation of her light, her motion and her presence, the admonition of her craters, her arid seas, her silence, her splendour, when visible, her attraction, when invisible. Close quotes. That quote is taken from James Joyce's Ulysses, and strangely, considering it's James Joyce, I kind of even understand it. It is about the moon. The moon is odd. We all know it's there, but if it suddenly disappeared one day, and the tides and everything stayed the same, if that was even possible, would we notice the moon had gone? How many of us are that observant that we would notice it had disappeared? When the moon goes up in the sky, we all see it and we always notice it. But just how observant are we of it? The moon has held humanity in its fascination for millennia. As the age of exploration in Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries began, the moon too started to be explored in literature. Of course, the Europeans were the ones exploring the moon, not the moonlings exploring the earth. It was imagined as a utopia full of noble savages, similar to how Europeans were classifying the lands they were coming ashore on. At the same time, science was beginning to grapple with how the moon actually worked. Newton's Principa of 1687 made the key discovery that it was gravity that was keeping the moon tied to the earth. Space stories and science fiction in general really starts in the late Victorian period with mostly English and French writers. Jules Verne's 1870 novel Around the Moon was the first that would find the moon uninhabited rather than populated. In the novel the characters ask what's the point in getting to the moon if it's dead with nothing to see? The response? The point is to get there. The ability to reach the moon, Verne says, marks the point in which humans have become a power of truly planetary significance. The travellers have, quote, placed themselves beyond the pale of humanity by crossing the limits imposed by the creator on his earthly creatures, close quotes. The science fiction of this period marks the start in thinking about how to go into space. Robert Goddard and other pioneers of the rocket as we've seen on the episode on the rocket, were enthusiasts of science fiction. Goddard read and reread H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds and its unofficial sequel, Edison's Conquest of Mars, in which the inventor builds a fleet of spacecraft to take the fight back to the Martians. I don't think it would be too far to state 
that early science fiction, in effect, was a large part of the early theorising about space. So this episode on spacecraft is, in effect, a sequel, or at least a parallel to the episode on rocketry. So why have I ranked spacecraft higher? Well, basically for the only reason that rocketry is less aspirational, less awe-inspiring. We don't watch the moon landings and think about the Saturn V rocket. We watch the landing craft and see the technical achievement in that. It's basically the same reason when we imagine ourselves in a band, we almost always want to be the lead singer or guitarist rather than the bassist or the drummer. So what is or are spacecraft? A spacecraft is a vehicle or machine designed to fly into outer space. Spacecraft are used for a variety of purposes such as communications, earth observation, meteorology, navigation, planetary exploration or transportation of humans and or cargo. Spacecraft at present cannot get into space on their own and so do require a launch vehicle, the rocket, to get into space. On the morning of the 5th of October 1957, many Americans woke up to find out that a Soviet satellite had flown over their heads at least four times as they'd slept. For President Dwight D. Eisenhower, it is a shocking sign that Soviet technology was now ahead of America's. The Soviet satellite Sputnik 1 had been launched into orbit on top of a Soviet R-7 two-stage ICBM rocket. Technically not the first satellite, as the V-2 rocket had reached an altitude of 189 kilometers in June 1994, and therefore became the first spacecraft. But Sputnik was seen as the first artificial satellite as it began to orbit the Earth. The story of Sputnik isn't often talked about, at least in the West. At most, it's mentioned for its effect on the United States of America. But it's a marvellous piece of engineering, especially when you have the Soviet bureaucratic machine on top of you. Firstly, the Soviets had to develop the R-7 rocket, which failed several times on launch during the middle of 1957. Eventually, the R-7, on the 21st of August, reached a predestined target before disintegrating. Another launch on the 7th of September had the same results. The Soviets believed it was now time to launch into outer space. On the 20th of September, the Soviets set a launch date for the 6th of October, but rumours spread of an American scientific paper called Satellite in Orbit, due to be presented that day. Thinking it would only be a suborbital launch, the Soviets, however, pushed the date ahead of their launch forward two days. At 10.28 Moscow time on the 4th of October 1957, an R7 carrying Sputnik 1 was launched. The ascent went flawlessly, as did the separation of Sputnik 1 from the rocket. Yet, when Sputnik had unfolded its antennae and began to transmit, it passed beyond the range of the Soviet receivers. Soviet scientists were in a 90-minute wait for the next passage across the sky. When a steady stream of beeps confirmed Sputnik was in stable orbit, they knew the space age had begun. The US did not respond well. 
When they heard about the launch, Werner von Braun was entertaining a group of VIPs, including the Secretary of Defense and the Army Chief of Staff. Von Braun claimed that man had taken his first steps towards Mars. It was called a technological Pearl Harbor, though, despite the US public thinking there was a huge gap in capabilities, the issue was that the United States was keeping its own capability close to its chest. So while they were behind in rocket technology, it was not quite as bad as the American public thought. On the 9th of October, Eisenhower congratulated the Soviet Union on putting, quote-unquote, a small ball into space. Nevertheless, a US response was launched on the 6th of December, and the Vanguard launch was sent off from Cape Canaveral. Two seconds after launch, a huge explosion tore it apart. A month after Sputnik, there was no rest for the Soviet scientists, who had to prepare, as per Khrushchev's instructions, to follow it up quickly. Having launched a dog to the edge of the atmosphere beforehand, they decided putting a dog into space would be the best propaganda coup. Laika was one of the ten dogs chosen. All dogs were light-coloured mongrel bitches, so they could be seen by the cameras more easily, and female dogs too, to make designing the nappies or diapers easier. Laika was simply a dog found wandering the streets of Moscow. On the 3rd of November 1957, Sputnik 2 was launched, and within a couple of hours it was proclaimed as another propaganda coup. The Americans were pressed to respond more effectively this time. On the back of a Juno rocket, the Explorer 1 rocket was launched. A temperature sensor, a microphone system to detect the sound of tiny meteorites. It was effectively a gag counter with a radio transmitter to send data back to Earth. Despite it being launched in supposed secrecy, there were thousands of people watching it set off. Very quickly from the start of the space race, one important object of fascination was the moon. The newly formed NASA launched a satellite towards the moon, but it didn't escape the Earth's gravity. While the Soviet Lunik probe sailed past the moon at a distance of 5,995 kilometers, the probe's intention had been for a crash into the moon, but control failure saw them shift this to a flyby. The Soviets were still able to announce another triumph, and this was more apparent when the Pioneer 4 US probe managed to get only within 600,000 kilometers. In 1959, on the 7th of October, the Lunar 5 successfully swung past the moon and sent back images of the dark side of the moon for the first time. Until the 1960s, the world thought of planet services as reminiscent of paintings by American artist Chesley Bonstall. With the space race reaching the 60s too, the next missions were to send probes to other planets. Both the Soviet and Americans looked towards the solar system. For the first time though, the Soviets began to face challenges. They attempted to launch two Martian flybys, but these ended in failure, as did two probes to Venus. Meanwhile, the Americans were still lagging behind, and it still took them another year for them to start launching their own probes. 
The Mariner 1 probe was destroyed after the launcher vehicle veered off course, but the Mariner 2 was more successful, and three and a half months later it made the first flyby of Venus. Although it was a simple and crude device, it revealed that Venus had a baking hot surface choking atmosphere and a rotation period, that's a day, of 243 Earth days. When the Americans tried to follow up the mission with a Martian probe, history repeated itself. The Mariner 3 didn't manage to leave orbit, while the Mariner 4, after a seven month flight, flew within 10,000 kilometers of Mars. It sent back 21 pictures revealing a lack of magnetic field and a much thinner atmosphere than expected. The Soviets weren't really too concerned with scientific probes. They had their minds on something far more impressive. Mikhail Tikhoranov had thought about manned spaceflight in the 1940s, but it wasn't until the 1950s when the idea really came to a head. Called the Object OD2, the spacecraft was later given the more impressive name Vostok. After much political wrangling, the State Commission finally gave authorization for the manned spaceflight in 1960. However, technical problems soon affected the program, and so it would have to take place in the spring of 1961. After much searching for the right person to pilot the spaceflight, and 3,000 interviewees shortlisted to 102, Yuri Gagarin eventually won the place in the cockpit. Why did Gagarin win the place? The other possible was German Titov, who most agreed was the better man for the job. But Gagarin had done a better job of finding the right political line between unquestioning obedience and independence. It didn't harm either Gagarin's case that he had the same peasant background to that of Khrushchev. On the morning of the 12th of April 1961, Titov and Gagarin both got suited up and went to the Vostok capsule, but it was of course Gagarin who got inside. At 9.06am, the R7 engines fired and lifted Gagarin into space and towards orbit in a 108-minute flight that would make history. Even with Gagarin passing outside radio contact, Radio Moscow announced the mission as a success. Gagarin went into space and landed as planned in the Saratov province in southern Russia. Gagarin was celebrated with the largest crowds Moscow had seen since the end of the Second World War. Titov was eventually to get into space on the Vostok 2 mission in a day's long flight. Nobody knew what extended weightlessness would do to a human. Titov became nauseous, but after 17 orbits he too landed safely on Earth. But this was getting to the end of the Vostok missions. Despite their useful scientific information, the amount of propaganda that could be gleaned from repeating similar missions diminished, something Americans would later learn with their Apollo program. The US once again have to respond. It already had the Mercury program, but the announcing of the Soviet missions meant that the newly inaugurated John F. Kennedy would need to respond. The first manned Mercury spacecraft was by Alan Shepard on the 2nd of May 1961 when he was lifted off into space. It lasted only 15 minutes 22 seconds, 
but 45 million Americans watched it on TV, and it helped convince the US population that it was keeping up with Soviet efforts. When Kennedy took office, it looked for all the world like it would be the Soviets who would take control of the space race. The power of Russian rockets meant the Soviets would be likely to put a multi-cosmonaut spacecraft into space. The same for a semi-permanent space station. But when it came to the moon, it looked more balanced. The Soviets were closer to the technology to circle the moon, but landing and returning them safely to Earth was much more difficult, and that meant the United States would have time to play catch-up. Kennedy was told that the chances the US went all out to try and land a man on the moon before the Soviets was about 50-50. That would be good enough for Kennedy, who announced in the speech we featured on the rocket episode that the United States too would land a man on the moon. The Gemini spacecraft was perhaps the first space ship, as its design meant it could change orbits and actually fly rather than merely follow the trajectory into which it was initially launched. Gemini was in some respects more advanced than the Apollo spacecraft which was to come after it. Its designing and building took a mere 30 months from announcement to the test launch. The first flights were in 1964, and after a couple of unmanned launches by March 1965, it was ready for a manned launch. The first launch was not eventful, just three orbits around, but the second manned launch was much more ambitious. Gemini stayed in orbit for four days, and Ed White, one of the pilots, became the first American to walk into space. Gemini 5 launched in August 1965 and pushed the limits even further. They remained in orbit for eight days. White was beaten to the first spacewalk by Alexei Leonov, who went into space on the 18th of March 1965 and spacewalked for 12 minutes over the Earth, though Leonov's landing went far from smoothly. When the Russians landed back on Earth, they were 368 kilometres away from where they should have been, meaning they had to spend a freezing night in their spacecraft surrounded by wolves before they were rescued. I can just imagine that being the plot of a Liam Neeson movie as he goes around punching all the wolves trying to infect the spacecraft. To get to the moon, NASA would have to go through a program of lunar discovery all by itself. The moon still, despite being so close to Earth, had many puzzles. For example, were the moon's craters volcanic or formed by impact from space? If they were volcanic, would that mean there was seismic activity on the moon? Three probes were sent to glean more understanding. It took until the seventh range of probe for it to finally reach the moon and start sending back images. 4,300 were sent back. Ranger 8 and 9 were also successful and solved the mystery. The moon craters were so small they could only be the result of asteroid collision. Ranger 8 is also notable for crashing into the Sea of Tranquility, later to be the place where Apollo 11 landed. The result of the lunar missions was that 99% of the moon's surface was mapped at a relatively high resolution. You may be interested to know why it's called the Sea of Tranquility. Giovanni Rocelli, who first observed the moon in 1651, 
misinterpreted the darker spots on the moon as water seas, hence why it's called a sea. When the International Astronomical Union codified the naming of seas, it limited it to characteristics of water and state of mind, hence tranquillity. It also caused a minor diplomatic incident when the Russian Luna 3 probe discovered a sea on the far side of the moon and wanted it to be named after Moscow. This was only accepted by the Union after the Russians claimed that quote-unquote Moscow is a state of mind. The Apollo mission was one of, if not the greatest megaproject in history. After much deliberation, knowing they had until 1969, before the decade was out to achieve their goals, they chose to go for a lunar orbit rendezvous as the easiest way to land on the moon and then to get back. This meant a three-stage rocket put the spacecraft on course for the moon. Once in lunar orbit, a lunar module descends to the surface, while, during landing, the command surface module remains in orbit for the return. However, the Apollo mission instantly faced tragedy. Due to the rapid pace of development and testing, George Mueller's NASA's Associate Administrators for Manned Spaceflight decided that testing one thing at a time would take too much time. He estimated that this way would take 20 launches. So they tested it all at once, and six hours into the first test, a catastrophic fire in the capsule spread in the pure oxygen atmosphere, and the crew could not escape from the hatch. The crew all died from smoke inhalation. Despite losing three crew members on the first mission, there was no talk of abandoning Apollo. Due to the oddness of NASA's numbering, the next launch was Apollo 4, and then Apollo 5 both unmanned. These were considered enough of a success to begin thinking of manned Apollo missions. The Apollo program was racing against both the consistent movement of time with the end of the 1960s and also the Soviet machine, which was now looking like it had reached capacity. But the Soviets weren't quite done just yet. The Soviets were still capable of huge engineering constructions like the UR-500 Proton, which was so ahead of its time, its design is still being used today. But Soviet bureaucracy meant that it took two years for a Soviet lunar project to get off the ground. Despite these vague Soviet efforts to catch up to the Americans, there was no real challenge to the Apollo missions. On the 30th of December 1968, Soviet leaders met to discuss their impending defeat. Using the Proton rocket, they thought to launch a robotic mission to collect and return lunar rock to get there ahead of the Americans. So in July 1969, the Lunar 15 probe raced towards the moon ahead of Apollo 11, but then crashed into the Sea of Crises, a good name. Apollo 7 blasted into space on the 11th of October 1968 which was difficult firstly with all the technical issues, secondly the crew was faced by the fact that the mission was broadcast live on TV. There was much tension between the crew, with one calling the other idiotic and the other paranoid. Unsurprisingly, none were selected for further missions. Apollo 7 was still an amazing success, and with the Americans thinking the Soviets were further ahead than they were with their lunar missions, 
They set Apollo 8 to go at Christmas 1968. On the 21st of December, Frank Foreman, Jim Lovell, Bill Anders launched into space. It was the perfect mission. With everything going well, the crew were allowed to have a crucial engine burn that would put them into lunar orbit. These astronauts were the first to see the Earth from over the moon, taking the photo Earthrise. Apollo 9 was a 10-day mission designed to test the lunar module and it went perfectly. Apollo 10, the lunar module, went within 10 miles of the lunar surface with no major problems and many high-quality photographs of the Sea of Tranquility taken, which had now been selected as the landing point of the Apollo 11 mission. Apollo 10 landed and the Soviet cosmonaut trainer Nikolai Kamenin was privately admitting that the Americans would be on the moon within weeks. At 9.32 on the 16th of July 1969, a Saturn V rocket thundered into life, burning 13,000 litres of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen every second as it lumbered into the sky. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. A million people watched from the side and 600 million around the world as 12 minutes later Apollo 11 was in orbit. The three men, Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins, were all top professionals. And after just one and a half orbits of Earth, the upper stage of the rocket kicked the spacecraft towards the lunar surface. The journey took a little over three days, and the Eagle, the lunar module, was eight miles from the surface. Armstrong eased down the lunar module with only 20 seconds of descent fuel available. Altitude, velocity, light, in and down, 220 feet, 15 forward. Forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet, four and a half down, five and a half down. Within 60, six, six and a half down, five and a half down. Nine forward. Good. In 20 feet. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. Five percent. Seventy-five. Eight seventy-five feet. That's looking good. Down a half. Six forward. Sixty seconds. Lights on. Six. Down two and a half. Down two and a half, picking up some dust. Three feet, two and a half down, great shadow. Four forward, four 
forward, drift into the right a little. Ready? Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, drift. Ready? Contact right. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twain. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. On the way, they listened to Mother Country by John Stewart, the perfect hippie folk song for the journey, and featured in the brilliant film documentary Apollo 11, released in 2019. The astronauts waited to see what effect the weight of the capsule would have on the rocks and dust below. Armstrong and Aldrin stopped for a meal before donning their spacesuits. Armstrong stepped out first and, shuffling down the steps, deployed the television camera and said those immortal words to the one billion people back home. That's one small step for man. One Aldrin followed 19 minutes later, and for just under two hours, they collected rocks, samples, and science experiments. One curiosity they noted was the difficulty of estimating distance. The lunar horizon was much closer than Earth's, and without atmosphere, there was no haze to offer a visual clue to the distance and nearby hills. They placed the US flag a plaque to the Apollo 11 and Soyuz 1 lost astronauts and had a brief conversation with President Nixon. Soon they were back on their way home. Two and a half days later they splashed down in the Pacific Ocean 15 miles from where the USS Ocean and President Nixon was waiting for them. Following Apollo 11 was Apollo 12 to try and refine some of the rough edges of previous Apollo missions. Pete Conrad, who was 11 centimetres shorter than Armstrong, said when he first stepped onto the moon, quote, Man, that may have been one small one for Neil, but it's a long one for me. Close quotes. Apollo 13 was, of course, the most dramatic mission of them all, when, 56 hours into the flight, an immortal line came. The crew triggered one of the command module's oxygen tanks, and the surface module was crippled and unable to provide power of oxygen to the command module. Landing on the moon was not an option. But they could not simply turn around. There was not enough fuel for the mission, so they would have to fly around the moon. On the fly, no pun intended, the crew had to improvise their course correction burns and calculate their precise position and trajectory by the start and using the descent engine on the lunar module as a retro rocket for the entire spacecraft. Fortunately, the command module was separated without problems, and millions watched as the crew splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. Apollo 14, 15 and 16, and 17 
were great scientific successes too. But the space race was now won. The United States was bogged down in Vietnam, and the NASA budget was unsustainable, and so Apollo was axed. Mission commander for Apollo 17 landed at the target area, Taurus Littero, near the Sea of Serenity. He, the last aboard the lunar module, left a plaque, and just as he was about to board the lunar module, he saluted the Stars and Stripe flags before saying, This is Gene, and I'm on the surface. And I'd uh, take me his last step from the surface back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future. I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and towards literal, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. Now, the Apollo missions were over, so what next? While the story of spacecraft may have reached its popular zenith, but it wasn't over yet. Skylab, the first American space station, was launched. Occupied for 24 weeks between May 1973 and February 1974, Skylab included a workshop, solar observatory, and several hundred science experiments. Skylab was the last mission for the Saturn V rocket. Three groups of three went into Skylab and stayed for increasing amounts of time. The first crew were there for 28 days, the second for 59 days, and the third for 84 days. Skylab, however, was abandoned in 1974, but NASA believed it would stay in orbit until the 1980s, but it crashed back down to Earth in 1979 into the Indian Ocean, and some of it ended up in Western Australia. With the Soviets knowing the space race was over, they switched their focus towards the exploration and exploitation of Earth's orbit. The Salyut 1 was launched by the Proton rocket and entered orbit 264 kilometres above the Earth. The first intended crew managed to dock, but an electrical fault prevented cosmonauts swinging aside the bulkhead between the two spacecraft and gaining access to the station. After several attempts, they undocked and returned to Earth. They tried again and successfully got on board. Later, a minor fire broke out and it was soon extinguished, but the scare led to the mission being cut short. As they left, an explosive bolt forced open a pressure valve, allowing air to escape and suffocating the cosmonauts. The Salyut 2 was a completely new and upgraded space station and announced on the 3rd of April 1973. It was more of a military installation than a scientific research craft. But when this launched on the 11th of May, there was a fault with its propulsion system and it spun out of control. Finally, the Salyut 3 launched in June 1974. When 
After the first crew left, it couldn't be another successful rendezvous, and it too was allowed to break up. But by this point, Salyut 4 was already in orbit. The last Salyut space station launched in 1982. By now, the Salyut stations were seeing the end of their lives, but they marked a decent step forward. The Salyut 7 lasted four years and reduced the need for guest visitors to bring up supplies. But with the space race over and unlimited funds not available, NASA had to think of something more economic and longer lasting. This meant winged spacecraft. The idea of a winged rocket-powered spacecraft goes back to the 1930s by Engin Sanger, a member of the German VFR Rocket Society. The real ancestors are the hypersonic X-Craft, one famous pilot of which was Neil Armstrong. They could fly five times the speed of sound and flew 17 miles above the Earth before gliding back down. Throughout the early years of space exploration, there were no reusable launch vehicles, so each launch was very expensive. The original idea was a two-stage vehicle with a space plane carried most of the way to orbit by a large rocket-powered pilot carrier aircraft. This concept was abandoned as it cost too much, and so the space transportation system would not be completely reusable. So how did the space shuttles work? The shuttle would lift off to an inverted position. The solid rocket boosters are jettisoned and splashed down at sea, ready for retrieval. The large external tank after the shuttle is high up and drops away and falls into the Atlantic and the orbiter, the main bit with the wings, can last up to 30 days in orbit before gliding back down to Earth. Despite being given the go-ahead in the 1970s, it took until 1981 for the first launch. It took until the fourth flight for Ronald Reagan to announce the Space Shuttle as operational and able to launch commercial satellites into space. The Shuttle Orbiter is perhaps the most famous thing about the Space Shuttle. White and about the same size as a short-haul jet airliner with a maximum crew of seven the Space Shuttle made it possible to retrieve valuable satellites from space and either repair them or return them to Earth. However, unfortunately, perhaps the longest lasting legacy of the Space Shuttle was the Challenger disaster. Just when the Space Shuttle was getting into gear, disaster struck. The Challenger launch of the 20th of January 1986 was the 25th launch and the focus of an unusual amount of attention. Christia McCloughy from New Hampshire was selected to be the first teacher into space and would be delivering lessons from a live television link from the shuttle to schools across the United States. Just 73 seconds after launch, school children across America were left horrified as Challenger exploded in mid-flight, killing all on board and showering debris across the Atlantic. Ronald Reagan appointed a board to look into the disaster, which included Neil Armstrong and physicist Richard Feynman, who famously revealed the vulnerability of the SRBO rings by dipping a sample of material into a jug of iced water and then snapping it with his hands. 
The investigation went full through NASA's infrastructure, tearing apart a culture of complacency as middle managers ignored engineers' worries. Feynman's worry about the Space Shuttle predicted a failure in about one every 50 missions, which proved tragically accurate. It was two years before another space shuttle was launched. The Discovery, with a larger than normal audience, went into space on a fairly routine mission. However, Challenger was not to be the last disaster. The 2003 Columbia disaster, when the Columbia was re-entering orbit and so close to home. There were signs the signs were ignored, and at an altitude of 70,000 kilometres, the wind broke up and took home with it the rest of the craft. Less than a month after the loss of the Challenger, the Soviet Union launched the Mir space station. Development began in the 1970s, and in February 1986, it was launched into space, 390,000 kilometres above the Earth. Nearly 33 metres in length, and with two docking ports, it meant that one craft could board without the other crew needing to leave first. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, it left much of the space infrastructure inside Russia, but may stayed in orbit. In June 1992, George Bush and Boris Yeltsin announced cooperation in space. With a large injection of cash from NASA, normal service of MIR was resumed, as the new Clinton administration branded cooperation with the Russians, who were to become major partners in a new planned project. Americans started to go aboard Mir and took a look at how the Russians lived aboard. They found the lack of contact the cosmonauts had with the ground enjoyable, but how aged Mir was, without the refurbs the space shuttles constantly got. With money running low, the Russians announced Mir was to close. Despite some hope of private money buying it and running it as a tourist destination, it was brought to a spectacular demise over the Pacific in March 2001. So there's been a lot of narrative so far in this episode, but spacecraft do more than just get launched. They help us gain a better scientific knowledge of the world, solar system and the universe. In this next section, we will look at how spacecraft have helped us with this and more specifically by looking at probes and artificial satellites. Since Sputnik 1 sent simple radio signals back to Earth, artificial satellites have transformed our view of the Earth and wider universe. It took a while for the idea of satellites to be realised. In the beginning, it was mostly military satellites that were used, acting as eyes in the sky. It took longer, however, for scientists to realise the potential of this new technology. After Gordon Cooper returned pin-sharp photos and reported seeing individual buildings from his Faith 7 Mercury capsule in 1963, NASA began to develop satellites more forcefully. Today, scientists study many aspects of geology, oceanography, climate and ecology using these artificial satellites. So what are the different types of satellites and their histories? The communication satellites were perhaps the oldest conceptual use of artificial satellites. People knew that telephone lines were limited and radio signals were fast, but travelled in straight lines. 
and so had limited range due to the curvature of the Earth. The ideal communicational satellite, or CONSAT, is the geostationary one first popularised by Arthur C. Clarke. It maintains a steady position in the sky and will not move. The first geostationary CONSAT was launched in August 1964 and had an immediate impact as it carried live pictures of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. President Kennedy was calling for the establishment of an international organisation to set up global communications, and nine months after his death, Intelsat was launched with 11 member states. In 2001, it was privatised with 100 nations involved. Another type of satellite is satellite navigation. Using what's known as the Doppler shifts in signal, satellite navigation enables that if the orbit of several satellites were known precisely, then Doppler shifts in their signal could be used to calculate the precise location of the receiving station on Earth. By late 1958, the US Navy and NASA's defence counterpart, ARPA, DARPA before it came DARPA, developed with John Hopkins University a series of satellites to test it. Between 1959 and 1988, several dozen transit satellites used the Doppler approach, but had the drawback that its accuracy was no greater than 200 metres. So the Department of Defence sponsored work on faster systems throughout the 1960s to test highly accurate time signals from orbit. From the 1970s, the United States began assembly of NAF-STAR Global Positioning System. Global Positioning System, or GPS, relied on radio navigation coupled with precise satellite signals. 32 satellites follow intermediate orbits around the Earth twice a day in order to give a precise system. President Reagan's decision in 1983 for civilian use ensured that GPS became synonymous with GPS navigation and resulted, starting in the 1990s, in a mini-revolution. The SatNav was introduced in 1990 and soon became ubiquitous. Other than consumer needs for GPS navigation, there were potential professional uses, but other than consumer needs for GPS navigation, it was the professional uses in surveying, archaeology, town planning and in automation that made it a revolution. Satellite navigation lies at the heart of future technology too, such as in automated vehicles like farming equipment, drone aircraft and self-driving cars. Satellites have enabled us to push ever further into space. The most famous of these is the Hubble Space Telescope. Deployed in 1990 and using similar technology to that of normal telescopes, it found that when it was launched, it had a tiny flaw in its mirror, meaning that all the images were blurred. So it wasn't until 1993 that it became fully operational. It has become one of the most famous and productive scientific instruments ever built. Space probes have provided invaluable scientific knowledge into space and physics. This started with the earliest lunar probes we talked about earlier, but it was with the early missions to Mars when human experiments began looking into other planets. The Mariner 9 mission in 1970 
arrived after a six-month journey, but as it did, it found a dust storm covering the planet. When it could finally see the planet, there was an unexpected landscape. The north was covered with huge volcanoes, towering above a smooth lowland plain. The peak was named Olympus Mons, the largest volcano in the solar system, rising 27 kilometres over the surface. And then there were the huge Martian canyons, 10 kilometres deep and 600 metres across. In 349 operations of Mariner 9, it transformed our view of Mars. Viking 1 and Viking 2 probes later landed and continued taking photos, while land probes sent pictures of the orange-red sand littered with rocks beneath a salmon-pink sky. The probes had seismometers to detect any earthquakes, and the weather station reported minus 120 degrees at night to 7 degrees in the morning. There were no signs, however, of photosynthesis or carbon-based matter in the soil. During the 1980s and 1990s, NASA shifted away from Mars, but came back in in 1997. The most current of the Mars probes is the Curiosity rover. It touched down in 2012 and found some evidence for a habitable environment and found, in 2018, complex carbon-based organic chemicals in rocks. Not evidence of life, but evidence life might leave behind. So what is the most American thing you can think of? If we're trying to stereotype and all. Somebody with hot dogs, Chevrolet muscle cars or baseball might be somewhere near the top. But a space station called Freedom would also, I think, be close to the top too. In the early 1970s, budget cuts had forced NASA to choose between the space station and the space shuttle. But in the early 1980s, politics changed. And with the space shuttle launches becoming ever more routine, and the cooling of the detente between the USA and the Soviet Union, meaning that the Cold War might reignite the space race, Reagan announced in 1984 that the United States would build a space station called Freedom. The station's development was long and tortuous. Initial plans were for a crew of 12. With the end of the Cold War, there was no justification from a political point of view to keep the project. But it managed to survive cancellation in Congress by just a single vote. With the improved relations with Russia, there was, however, a new way forward. In 1993, the Russian and the US space agencies agreed on a joint enterprise. A hybrid of MIR-2 and Freedom, it was called Space Station Alpha, before being renamed the International Space Station. 108 metres in length by 72 metres in width, it was built for a crew of six, and at present has been continuously manned since 2000. In the first decade, crews worked up on finishing construction. Since 2011, it has been fully operational and it has carried out groundbreaking space research. Experiments have tested ways of promoting the growth of plants in space to ensure a supply of fresh foods, investigated the potential for robots to assist astronauts. Of course, as we get into the modern days of spacecraft, the world becomes more than just NASA. Europe and Japan and Russia continue to carry out experiments and launch flights. But also China has entered the scene, embarking on the most ambitious project yet of sending men into orbit and soon beyond. 
China is intending to launch its Tiangong space station, which will be similar in many ways to the Mir space station. The future of spacecraft looks good for the first time in decades, with renewed Chinese interest and American private money investing in the technology. Furthermore, there will be more experiments being launched, with Western space agencies launching them all the time. The Parker Solar Probe will brave the sun's outer corona on a seven-year mission to bring it closer than any artificial object has ever been before. There are ever more missions to Mars. Further afield, there are plans to explore Europa with NASA's Clipper flying to Europa with 45 planned flybys of the likeliest place other than Earth for life. But I think the most promising area at the moment is in commercial spacecraft. Several entrepreneurs such as Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos are using their wealth to develop private space enterprises. The Falcon rocket series has tackled the holy grail of reusable launch systems, but SpaceX has been developing spacecraft too. The unmanned Dragon capsule has delivered cargo to the International Space Station since 2012 and will soon take astronauts up to the ISS. Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin has also been launching rockets in a less showy manner than Musk's SpaceX. There has been long speculation that private companies will exploit asteroids, and with the launch of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket in 2018, it showed commercial spaceflight has a future. And if Musk's dream of a Martian colony by the late 2020s manifests itself, and with the speed and development of space flight, who's to bet against him? Then, if that happens, we as humans will have to reevaluate how we see ourselves. Over 100 years ago, Konstantin Tilskovsky was certain that spaceflight would be for all. It would see us enter a new epoch. There are many who argue spaceflight is too expensive and a diversion from issues on Earth. Spaceflight enables us to explore our horizons as humans. What is the meaning of life? Surely it is to explore and reach out and find out about life and what it is all about. Spacecraft offers us the most unique way we can do this. And so for that reason, spacecraft is listed and number 69 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.